As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been born blind. Teacher, whose sin caused him to be born blind? Was it his own or his parents' sin? His blindness has nothing to do with his sins or his parents' sins. He is blind so that God's power might be seen at work in him. As long as it is they, we must keep on doing the work of him who sent me. Night is coming. When no one can work. <laughs> While I am in the world, I am the light for the world. After he said this, Jesus spat on the ground and made some mud with the spittle. He rubbed the mud on the man's eyes. Go and wash your face in the pool of Siloam. This name means scent. So the man went, washed his face, and came back, seeing. His neighbors then, and the people who had seen him begging before this, asked, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? He's the one. No, he isn't. He just looks like him. I am the man. How is it that you can now see? The man called Jesus made some mud, rubbed it on my eyes, and told me to go to Siloam and wash my face. So I went, and as soon as I washed, I could see. Where is he? I don't know. Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Lakeside. This morning, uh, we come to one of like the most sensational miracles in the Gospels. Not the most, though, but one of them. Uh, you don't get more sensational than the resurrection of Lazarus or of Jesus. But this one's pretty uh, high on the list. And... Uh, in John 9, if you have your scriptures, you'll definitely want to turn and find uh, John chapter 9. This story begins plainly enough. As Jesus is walking along with his disciples, they happen across a man who was born blind from birth. 
And the disciples, you might think that this story begins a certain way, but it really doesn't. They, they see an opportunity not to help somebody or to show compassion, but they see kind of a, an opportunity to resolve an age-old theological dispute. They have a, a religious question for Jesus. So in John 9, 2, they ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sent, you know, that this man was born blind? Was it, was it him? Was it his parents? What's the explanation, the, the sin explanation for this situation? Now, we can imagine this question being asked a hundred different ways. And this same question has been asked for centuries upon centuries. Old Testament, Gospels, New Testament, even today. Uh, who sinned that this child was born in poverty? Or who sinned that this child was born with diabetes? You know, you see a, a, a real small preschool kid that's got a diabetic pump, and it's just like, oh, man, he's going to have that pump his whole life. Like, who sinned that that kid is in that situation? Who sinned that a, a child was born with cancer or born with a disability or a lifelong condition like blindness. You see, this question could be asked a, a lot of different ways, but it really is a question that we would ask as well. And uh, I think for a parent, the most distressing question would be, hey, did we do something wrong that our child is suffering in this manner? You can imagine what parents go through. Is God punishing us for our past sins? Is, is God's curse, or maybe that's too strong of a word, is God's disfavor on us because we have a child that has this? And, and you know, When one set of parents has a healthy child, they might imagine themselves to be righteous and, and to have God's blessing and favor, and it's all smiles. But when another set of parents has an unhealthy child or the child has a condition, you know, they sometimes feel that maybe some judgment's being levied upon them. Do you see how this same kind of issue is echoed throughout all ages? Now, when Jesus is asked questions in the Gospels, like dozens and dozens of questions, there hundreds of questions that people have asked Jesus, do you realize that almost without exception that when Jesus is asked a question, he asks a question in return? He very rarely answers any question. Look into the matter for yourself. He very rarely, like only three or four times when he's asked a question, does Jesus ever give a direct answer? Now, in this situation, Jesus gives a direct answer. He doesn't want there to be any confusion about this issue. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. If you're trying to equate, uh, you know, somebody's sin and in some situation, that's the wrong correlation to make. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now, the same kind of question comes up again and again in Jesus' ministry. There is another time, and I'll point you to Luke chapter 13 if you want to look into this. Luke 13, 1, there's some people that come to Jesus, and they report about King Herod to Jesus. And King Herod did this very wicked thing where he slaughtered some Galileans, but then he took their blood and then he mixed it in with the blood of the Jewish sacrifices. And he tainted the sacrifices. He corrupted and defiled the Jewish sacrifices. So as abhorrent as it was that he 
killed and slaughtered these Galileans for whatever reasons. He, it's what he did with their body, their, their blood, that was equally or even more egregious. And they're telling Jesus about this situation. And, and, and the question that's kind of behind all of this is, do people suffer human cruelty because they're under some kind of curse? Because they've somehow sinned or they're getting their due? You know, are the people of Ukraine, for example, who are suffering under the cruelty of, of Putin, are they somehow lesser than we Americans over here, you know, or any other group of people? Uh, the Iranians or, or, or the Iraqians or, or whoever else, you know, we, we kind of have this idea that maybe people are suffering because uh, God's favor is not on them, God's curse is on them, or, or this kind of a thing. Now, this is the question in Luke 13 about these Galileans. And, uh, you know, in, in counseling, I've noticed this thing where a person who is suffered a horrible trauma in their life, uh, that suffered cruelty at the hands of another person. It could be a, a current situation. It could be like a domestic violence situation. It could be child abuse. could be sexual abuse. could be a, any number of things. There's a difference. A thing that happens where a person goes, they're describing something bad that happens to them, but then there's also this layer of false shame where they say and believe, I am bad. Not just that cruelty was done to me, but there must be something wrong with me. I, I must have some fatal flaw that this happened to me. Uh, you know, God maybe abandoned me or, or didn't love me the same as he loved somebody that was in a healthier situation or a better family or a better marriage or, you know, God's always had it out for me and here's my, you know, history and here, here's all these things that have happened. That's the pretext with the example of the Galileans that maybe Herod was able to do this thing because they were more sinful or whatever else. We're not so good at interpreting cruelty. We're not so good at interpreting conditions, childhood conditions, for example, like blindness. But there's another situation in Luke 13 that I want to point out. They also report to Jesus in the same conversation about a tower in Siloam that fell, or at least Jesus knew about it, and, and 18 people tragically perished when this tower collapsed. So that wasn't Herod. That wasn't something that was a condition that a person was born with. That was just a calamity. And we see all sorts of horrifying calamity, like every day. The young man, for example, that fell to his death from that ride this week. I mean, that is just terrible, terribly tragic. The passengers of that Chinese jetliner that crashed into the mountain, it broke up in the air or whatever happened, we don't know. But it, it flew into the ground almost at the speed of sound and, and nobody survived. Just horrible the victims of the high-rise collapse down in Florida months back and just watching all that. I mean, just like the, the people of Ukraine. I mean, it's not just any of these situations. I mean, like I, I wrote this sermon earlier today. I'm like, there's another half a dozen things that's happened just in the last day. Do people tragically die because they're somehow more sinful or less righteous or less good or less deserving or less faithful or less faith-filled, maybe those people, every single one of them, they died because they didn't have faith. There's this idea that we have, that we connect sin and suffering. And in Luke 13, 3, Jesus says, no, I tell you. See, this is another example. He just clearly answers it. He says, no, unless you repent, though, you will all perish as well. 
all right? And then in the second question about the, the tower that fell, in Luke 13, 4 and 5, Jesus says, do you think you were more sinful? Or do you think they were more sinful than all the other people who live in Jerusalem? Is that why you think they died? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as well. So we all are sinners. We, no one's righteous, not one. Uh, you know, God's not paying, uh, picking favorites in, in all this and assigning suffering to some, and, right? We're, we're all sinners, and we all have the same business that we have to do, which is to believe and repent, or we will all perish too, but not just in a physical way, in a more ultimate way. That's how Jesus responds to this issue, very clearly, very succinctly, and, and very directly. So you might recall in the book of Job how Job was a righteous man. That fact is established right at the front of the, letter, of, the, of the book of Job. And yet he suffered mightily. I mean, he suffered in all the categories. Cruelty, calamity, the whole nine yards, right? His friends speculate wildly about the reasons for his suffering. And the friends say all the same things and repeat all the same baloney and everything that is still repeated today. But it had nothing to do with any of that, right? In John 9, Jesus doesn't assign any negative or human or divine causation to suffering. And he says, neither the parent nor this person. That's not the right lens. And so I don't think we should assign things either. What Jesus does in John 9, I think, is quite profound. He states rather positively, neither this man nor his parents sin." But this situation has come about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. We're going to leave that up for a moment. It's interesting to consider how Jesus speaks to suffering in the context of not just this man's life, but of all the verses that we've been kind of looking at in the Gospel of John. Whether it's a natural disaster that's occurred, okay, a, a tower collapses, whether it's a scenario of violence or cruelty or injustice with Herod, whether it's sickness, disease, or, or incapacitation, fill in the blank, blindness, suffering is always an occasion for God to manifest something good, his goodness, his greatness, his glory. That's what Jesus is saying. This situation is an occasion for something great to happen in this person's life and in other people's lives. And so in the Gospel of John, you know, this uh, blind man isn't some kind of a lab rat or a frog that you dissect or some topic that you just kind of entertain for intellectual stimulation. You know, this is a person. And for Jesus, compassion trumps the academics of their question. He answers the academics of it. He says, neither this man nor his parents sin. Like, he, he dismisses that. But he's dealing with a life and a story and a man whose whole life has been affected. And so in Jesus, in the Gospel of John, compassion trumps academics. But it's more than that. In Christ, life triumphs over death, love triumphs over hate, peace triumphs over chaos, hope 
triumphs over the most despairing situations. That when we look to Jesus, whatever the past or whatever the present is, isn't determinative of the future. That in Christ, a whole different trajectory, a whole different reality can emerge from the darkest places. The, the greatest light can shine into the darkest holes. Jesus is the light of the world. You know, and the vital thing that, that has to happen in the face of suffering is that each and every one of us, while it's still day, must do the works of him who sent Jesus. Now, what are the works that we are to do of the one who sent Jesus, the Father? What are the works that we must do while it's still day? And and day is kind of spoken of not in a literal 24-hour days, although, yes, 24 hours today, you know. But your life, in the span of your life, while it's still day, while you're living, what is the essential work that the Father God wants you to do in the face of suffering even, your suffering or somebody else's. Now, of all the works we're to do, uh, the most important, the same issue came up in John 6. John 6, 28 and 29, they asked Jesus, what can we do to perform the works of God? What is that great thing, that most essential towering thing for which I was born to do. Like, what is it to do the works of the Father? Well, you know, uh, there's a lot of things that we might start to, to flesh out there and to fill in the blanks, right? But Jesus says, this is the work of God. It's that you believe in the one that he has sent. That you believe in the one he has sent. Now, Back to John 9, verses 6 and 7, the Bible says that after Jesus said these things, he spit on the ground, and he made some mud from saliva, and he spread the mud on his eyes. There was a a preacher recently who, uh, during a service, had a volunteer come up, and he spit and wiped it on the man's eyes to kind of illustrate the reality of the story. I need a volunteer this morning. I'd like to be on the evening news. Anybody? It was pretty disgusting, especially when he started doing the deep cough, you know, to try to get the most nasty. You know, I mean, like, come on. Do we got to go through all the theatrics, you know, to understand what's going on here? Jesus spit on the ground. He made some mud from saliva, and he spread it on the man's eyes. And he told the man, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And so he left, and he washed and he came back seen. Now, Jesus just preached a little micro-sermon that we need to do the work of him who sent us. And we know that the work that we must do while it's still day, because night's coming, and when night comes, you won't be able to do this work. You have an allotted amount of time. It might literally be minutes. It might be hours. It could be a day, literally, a 24-hour day. It could be a week. It could be a month. We don't know how long our day will last. While it's day, the essential work that we need to complete before it's dark is to believe. This man understood that there was something he needed to do while it was still day, that he needed to wash in order that he would see. Now, it's interesting, some little details here. The pool that this Mayan is to wash his eyes in is called the Pool of Siloam. And the word Siloam means sent. 
So if we're to believe in the one that the Father sent, and he's being sent to this pool, which is called sent, you see the correlation, that there's more than just a physical thing going on here. There is an object lesson also at play. There's a deeper meaning to the logistics of this situation. And by the way, the tower that fell happened where? It's the Tower of Siloam, which the same word, sent. And so the, the sun is being sent into the darkness as the light. The sun is being sent into the most tragic circumstances of whatever category or genre that you can imagine, right? And he's being sent to bring life and hope by us believing and trusting in Jesus in the face of that darkness. He's the light of the world. While it's still light, I'm with you, Jesus says. But dark night is coming and you will no longer have the opportunity to believe. So the work of God is to believe in the one that God sent. In the face of suffering, we're to look to Jesus and believe in him. That is the essential thing. The gospel must be declared in the, in the face of tragedy and chaos and darkness. Uh, and, and the light must be held out. Now, a lot of times when tragedy comes, we rightly understand that we need to do good works in the sense of holding out good things, you know, to provide relief, to provide food, to provide clothing, to provide practical necessities, to, right? But if we do that work while it's still day, but we neglect the deeper work while it's still day of believing in Jesus and pointing people to trust God in the midst of the darkness, have we really done the work of God? Nicodemus learned that his upbringing, his spiritual heritage, he was a righteous man, he learned that it matters very little because Jesus tells him, you must be born again. You must be born of water and spirit. Nicodemus, you need to go and be baptized. You need to go and be washed. And you need to receive the Holy Spirit. And, and, and the, the spirit aspect of it is, is that just as the wind, you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going so it is those born of the Spirit. Nicodemus, you need to be washed and you need to let the Spirit of God carry you on a whole new trajectory in your life uh, apart from any place that you've been past or present. This man was told to go wash and it didn't matter past or present what his situation had God is going to carry him in a whole different trajectory in his life. That when we repent and believe and are baptized, the whole trajectory of our life is changed. The Spirit is going to do something beyond our wildest comprehension and imagination. You know, I'm sorry. You know, I know for many, all of us in some way, uh, the past has been very tragic and circumstances have been very hard, even cruel. Or, But the real tragedy is if in our suffering we remain blind. If in our suffering we never recognize or see Jesus, the light of the world. What's really tragic is if in our suffering of whatever it is we've experienced, we never believe on Jesus and receive life and life everlasting. The real tragedy in Jesus' mind when they told him about the tower, when they told him about all these things. In the words of Jesus, if you've suffered in this life, the real tragedy is that you still die in your sins as well. It's like a double death. Not only have you suffered and not only has there been tragedy, but you die in your sins. You didn't repent and you perish. That would be the greater tragedy. 
while it's still day, you have business to take care of. Repent and believe. You must be born of water and spirit. While it's still day, take care of business. Get your life ordered before the God of the universe. Bend your knee, repent, believe. While it's still day, because night's coming, and we don't know when night's coming or how near night truly might be. But when night comes, no work can be done. The work of believing cannot be done. And so John 9, 7, the blind man left and he washed and he came back seen. You know, I'm, I'm just struck by the simple obedience. This man heard the message, he left, he washed, and he came back seen. You know, we don't wash. We're like, well, do we really need to, like, physically wash? I mean, it's a spiritual lesson. I mean, does God literally want me to be baptized? No, nah, you know, surely not. You know, that's, that's a work, and the work is belief. And, like, you know, he left, he washed, and the whole trajectory of his life changed. He came back seen. A physical miracle occurs here, a sign from God the Father. And I, I know it's our instinct to read these gospel miracles and imagine, you know, if I truly believe God will undo or reverse whatever physical impairment I have or a child has or like if we really, really believe, like if I could just, I got to be more sincere, I got to really, really work hard at this. Like I know we often look at these miracles just on a physical level, but this miracle is clearly not just about physical sight, it's about spiritual sight. And physical sight, yes, it matters for this life. Whatever miracle you seek, it matters for this life. But spiritual life, what we see spiritually matters for eternity. Because unless we see and recognize Jesus, unless we repent, unless we believe on Jesus, a greater calamity works. It's interesting when Jesus did heal people physically, he'd say, stop sinning so that something worse doesn't happen to you. Like this is the moment for you to repent and to believe. And submit and yield, right? Or something worse, you could perish and your body of sin not be dealt with by the blood of Jesus. That would be even worse than whatever physical reality you've been living in. Unless we see, unless we recognize Jesus, unless we repent, unless we believe, right? We will all die in our sins. The Lamb of God has come and he's been sent from the Father to wash us in forgiveness by his blood. The, the Son, the Lamb of God has been come to free us from sin's power by God's Spirit. And if the Son washes and forgives you, and if the Spirit sets you free, guess what? You are forgiven and you are free indeed. And this is the work that you would trust God for forgiveness and freedom. That's the work among all works. There's other works with a lowercase w, but the capital W work is that you would believe on Jesus as the light of the world in the midst of your darkness and that we'd help others to do that as well. This passage is not just about physically seeing. It's about recognizing and seeing Jesus. Now, I want to read some of this narrative. It doesn't need a lot of explanation, but it's so powerful. What I want you to notice is how Jesus becomes more clear even to the blind man as this story unfolds. But not just the blind man, his parents, his neighbors, yes, even the Pharisees, 
Yes, all of Jerusalem. Everyone begins to see Jesus a little more clearly, the light in the midst of darkness. His neighbors in John 9, 8, his neighbors and people who had seen him before as a beggar, they said, isn't this the one that used to sit over there begging? And some said, yeah, he's the one. He's definitely the one. But other people said, no, he just looks like the guy. But the beggar kept saying, the blind man, he, you know, formerly blind man, he kept saying, I'm the one, I'm the man, I'm the guy. And so they asked him, well, how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus, made mud, spread it on my eyes, and he told me, go to Salome and wash. And so when I went and I washed, I received my sight. Those are the facts. Where is he? They asked. I don't know. I don't know where he is. And so they brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. They're like, the Pharisees, they'll, they'll sort this out. They're the experts. So that day, they, uh, they you know, Jesus, uh, the day that he made the mud and opened the eyes, it happened to be a Sabbath. So we know that this is going to be a whole hell storm, you know. I mean, he healed the other guy on the Sabbath. And that's been like the last four chapters. It's been all about why would you heal somebody on the Sabbath? You broke the law of Moses and all that. We don't have to go back and retread that. But the Pharisees are very aware that Jesus is doing these things on the Sabbath. And they ask this guy again how it was that he received his sight. And he says, they put mud on my eyes, I washed, and I can see. Got it? It's pretty simple. And some of the Pharisees said, well, this man Jesus, he's not from God because he's not keeping the Sabbath. He did this on the Sabbath. No man of God would do this on the Sabbath. But others said, wait a minute. How can a sinful person do any healings in the first place if God weren't with them? And a division rose in the Pharisees. And, you know, they're, they're sorting this out, right? And, again, they asked the blind man. They said, well, what do you say about him since you're the one whose eyes he opened? What do you say? And I want you to notice this. He said, he's a prophet. All right? He's a prophet. And the Jews, they did not believe this about Jesus. That, or they didn't believe it about the guy that he was blind and received his sight, and they thought it was a big scam. So they said, let's go get the parents, and let's dig into this a little deeper. So they went and got the parents, and they asked the parents, Mom, Dad, number one, is this your son? Yes. And did you say that he was born blind? Yes. Well, how is it that he can now see? And the parents are like, well, here's the facts. We know that this is our son. We know he was born blind. We don't know how it is that he now sees. And we don't know who opened his eyes. You can ask him. He's of age. He can speak for himself. That's what I love about the blind man. He speaks for himself. He's in a cancel culture where he knows if he says the wrong things or sends the wrong signals, he's going to get canceled. And so in verse 22, the parents realize it's a cancel culture situation. And his parents said what they said because they were afraid of the Jews and they, they knew that the Jews had, had threatened that if anybody confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, they're going to be banned. They're going to be canceled, right, from the synagogue, from the temple. So the parents, they don't want to be canceled, so they say, he's of age. Ask him. The parents throw the son under the bus. They say, you know, it's his, it's his conversation. It's his miracle. You work it out with him. I want you to notice in John 9 how everybody is starting to see Jesus a little more clearly. Spiritually, at first Jesus was just a man that did this thing, 
His name's Jesus. Then maybe he's a prophet. But now the parents are contemplating whether or not he may be the Messiah, the Christ. But they don't dare drop the M word. It was forbidden. You can't say Jesus and Messiah in the same sentence. But that idea was on everybody's mind, even though they couldn't say it. John 9, 24. A second time, the Pharisees called the man in who had been blind. And they told him, give glory to God, which is like saying, do not blaspheme God. Do not lie. Do not misrepresent what you say in the name of God. Like, take an oath. And they said, we know this man is a sinner. And the guy, the beggar said, well, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know is I was blind and now I can see. He's always on message. And then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And this guy's like, oh, geez. I've already told you. And you don't listen. Why do you want to hear the whole thing all over again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Now that's interesting. He sees himself as a disciple now. And do you want to be a disciple also? Do you want to be a disciple too? And so they ridiculed him. You're that man's disciple, but we're Moses' disciple. You know, Moses, we, he trumps everything. We know that God spoke to Moses, but this man, Jesus, we don't know where he's from. And yet, you know, we don't, we don't know anything about him. And the, and the blind man says, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. You don't know where he's from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, God listens to him. Throughout history, no one's ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. Basic logic 101. You were born entirely in sin. Your parents are yours, right? You're trying to teach us, and they threw him out. They canceled him. Now, that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is in verses 35 through 41. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out. And he went and found the man and he said, do you believe in the son of man? Now, you'd think that the work that needed to be on display in this man's life was only that he got his physical sight. But Jesus is not going to just leave a man with his physical sight without also giving him spiritual sight. So this is the real miracle, right? The physical thing, that was just kind of a prelude. That work of the physical healing was just a prelude to the really big thing that's about to happen here. And that is that a person see Jesus clearly. Do you believe in the Son of Man? While it's still day, do you repent? Do you confess? While it's still day, do you wash? Are you baptized? Do you receive the Spirit? While it's still day, are you taking care of business? Do you see me clearly? Do you believe? Who is he, sir? Tell me that I could believe in him. And Jesus says, you have seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking to you. I believe, Lord. Now he's Lord, not just a, right, Messiah, Christ, he's Lord. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see 
will see, and that those who do see will become blind. Those who couldn't see can now see clearly, and those who thought they could see can't see because they can't see Jesus and recognize him. Some of the Pharisees who were with Jesus and this man heard these things, and they said, we're not blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. If you were blind, you'd be seeing now. But because you think you see and you don't recognize me, you're actually blind. Your sin remains. You're not taking care of business and believing in Jesus. You're not doing the work that the Father requires. You realize there's only one sin that can truly derail God's eternal plan for your life. You might think it was a sin that you did from birth or that your parents did that wrecked the trajectory of your life. Something happened back then, some sin that, that I was born blind and that I've been on this path and, and, and my past is what it's been and my present struggles what it is and, and some sin happened and it's wrecked everything about my future. You might think that same thing. You might think that the cruelty of some Herod out there in your life has forever wrecked the great things that God wants to do in your life. You might think some random calamity, a tragedy, you know, uh, a happenstance, a disaster, you know, something that is seemingly random, like that it's forever. The only sin that can derail God's eternal plan for our life is if while it's still day, we don't believe on Jesus. That's it. To, to, to see Jesus and to believe on Jesus is life and life everlasting. Go and wash. You know, Nicodemus, you must be born again of water and spirit. But to not believe in Jesus, the light of the world is to continue walking in darkness. And to continue walking in darkness is to perish and to die in your sins. And as much as we are worried about the physical realities, the spiritual reality of perishing and dying in our sin is infinitely more grave. What are you waiting for? Jesus has drawn a very clear line, and not just physically, but spiritually. Do you see Jesus? Do you trust him? Do you believe in him? Do you acknowledge him, not just as some prophet or great teacher, but as Christ, as the Lord of your life? Are you his disciples? Will you bend your knee and worship the God of the universe in the face of Jesus? Will you serve him while it's still day? Because night's coming. And you're not going to be able to do the work that matters for eternity. Dear Father, we pray that we can hear very clearly this invitation of Jesus to come and see, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We pray that while it's still day, we would be responsive, that we wouldn't be presumptive about time, not one hour, not one day, not one week, not one month, not for a lifetime, but that we would take care today to wash and to believe and to receive this gift of life in Jesus. We pray that we would be responsive in his name. Amen. Uh, As the service progresses, uh, we're going to have a couple people at the round tables in the back. And if you've made a decision to come to Jesus for your sight, uh, come to one of the tables. Uh, and and we'll, we'll, we'll help you take those steps of being washed and, and being filled with the Spirit and, and having the whole trajectory of your life change 
in relationship with Jesus by walking in the light. Uh, today's the day of salvation uh, for you and your family if you would believe in Jesus.